Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Ruby Rogues. I'm David Kimura, and today on our panel, we have Valentino Stoll. Hey there. Darren Bromer. Hello, hello. And then we have Luke Stutters. Hello. And John Epperson. Hello, everybody. And so today it's a panel discussion, and we were talking a bit before the show, and we decided that we're going to talk about deployments. So considerations, different methodologies that you can deploy, where to deploy, and then also just uh, a, a bit about the production environment, scaling and all that kind of good stuff that a lot of times as developers, when we start out a new project, our end goal is to have this product up in a production environment. But as we are starting out, that's not something that we usually take into consideration as we start the development. And I think that it needs to be something that is in the back of our minds, at least, as we go through the entire development process. Because the decisions that we make today as developers on this project can affect how we deploy that application. It's going to determine the infrastructure to some degree. Did you work your tail off to get that senior developer gig just to realize that senior dev doesn't actually mean dream job? I've been there too. My first senior developer job was at a place where all of our triumphs were the bosses and all the failures were ours. The second one was a great place to continue to learn and grow, only for it to go under due to poor management. And now I get job offers from great places to work all the time. Not only that, but the last job interview I actually sat in was a discussion about how much my podcast had helped the people interviewing me. If you're looking for a way to get into your dream job, then join our Dev Heroes Accelerator. Not only will we help you get the kind of exposure that makes you attractive to your dream employer, but you'll be able to ask them for top dollar as well. Check it out at devheroesaccelerator.com. So I guess let's kick it off and talk just at the beginning and just some of the considerations that you guys have when deciding on deploying or how to deploy. Well, hang on a second there, Dave. Doesn't doesn't the DevOps team take care of this for us now? Don't we not have to worry in Railsland? Doesn't isn't there a magical department called DevOps that will just do it for me? Yeah, sure. And the companies that actually pay for them. But I think most <laughs> right. of us or some of us are in situations <laughs> where they are one in the same. We are the DevOps and the developer, which is a whole different discussion on its own. But in that case, in that case, if we if we're, if we're on the DIY shtick, um, what was your first Rails app that you deployed and that you kind of released to the general public? When's the first time that you did that? So my story may maybe is not a good one, but unfortunately, probably a very common one. It was one where the company was a .NET workshop. So I introduced Ruby on Rails into that ecosystem. And they were acceptant, but not very willing, if you were to say. So I had to fight tooth and nail to get resources because they originally wanted me to host it on a Windows box instead of a Linux server. And that had some questionable concerns as well. So if you are deploying your application to a virtual machine, um, I would not recommend Windows as a production environment for it. And it's really just that simple. So I ended up getting some Linux servers and they didn't want me to spend a lot of money, essentially. So they gave me one Linux VM. They spec'd it to 8 cores, 16 gigs of RAM. 
And that's what I had to work with. So a pretty beefy machine. But then they said, I had to run everything on there. They don't want to give me any more resources. So I had to install the MySQL database server on that virtual machine, the web application. And if I had any kind of quote load balancing that I need to do, so multiple worker processes behind an Nginx load balancer. But it's not a true load balancer because if that server goes down, the entire app is down. So database and all. The CAS server lived on there. And so did the file store because they did not at the time, those several many, many years ago at the time, they did not know what S3 was. They didn't know why someone would use it. They were always familiar with a Samba data store. So they just said, just store all the files locally on that machine because that's what we are giving you. So they expect me a couple of hundred gigabytes of storage space. Well, that's the first consideration. That virtual machine then became a pet to us. We had to maintain it. We had to keep it live. And it is a real consideration when you're deploying. So instead, the proper route at the bare minimum would have been to extract out these individual services. MySQL should have gone onto its own virtual machine if we were going to still do that. But you should use an RDS system. So something like AWS RDS for Elastic Beanstalk, or I'm sorry, for uh, MySQL or PostgreSQL, uh, or some other proper database engine that's out there, but not on your own virtual machines. But there are some considerations when you would want to host the database on its own virtual machine. And that's to get around connection limits if you don't need too large of a, a database instance. You know, leveraging S3 uh, for data store. So if that virtual machine ever does die, we don't lose anything because all the data is either in the database or on our S3 bucket. So that way we could always reprovision that virtual machine and then have a new one up and going with no data loss, just time loss. That's quite a horror story, isn't it, really? First Rails deployment on a Windows VM. Ouch. That's um <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess you must have really liked Rails. <laughs> I would just love to hear everybody's first story. Maybe not as as uh as complicated of a deployment story. As that for my first Rails app, but uh, I worked for an advertising agency as my first uh, Rails experience, and they were using uh, not Rails. They were they were a PHP shop with Joomla, and they would make you know pr- pretty much just content management systems extensions and customize Joomla <laughs> to cater to the client's needs. Uh, and they didn't do any e-commerce and Spree was pretty, was ramping up at that time. So I convinced them to use it and develop, uh, e-commerce apps with Spree. Um, and (laughs) I, I was not a a DevOps person. (laughs) I'm probably still not a DevOps person. Uh, but we, we had used, uh, you know, similarly some, VMs, possibly shared VMs, uh, to host, you know, with Passenger. Uh, so similarly, as is done on so, in some ways today, right? Where you have an Apache or Nginx just, you know, routing through Passenger to 
make sure it spins up Rails or Ruby apps the right way, a rack up. But we, we would do it development live just with an IP address. <laughs> and so at, you would SSH into the box and then just edit your Rails app on the box. And in you production. Know, in 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 production, you know, it's oh, uh, yes. it's accessible. <laughs> Nobody that's really how, knows about it yet. That's <laughs> how supposedly. <real> <laughs> uh, and then eventually, when you're ready to go live, you know, you you wipe the database to what it originally was uh, when you started, <laughs> and and then import their products and prepare it to for launch, and then just you know update the DNS. <laughs> So it was it was very simple though uh, in that you know you just had uh, a VM that you spun up and then you know threw your app up into a repo and then uploaded it to the box and that was it. <laughs> re, re, you know, keep touching the restart.txt. That's that's like 10, 15 years old <laughs> methodologies there. That, that was um, a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, that was like my first gig too, or whatever. It's like we did. Anyway, yeah, we did a lot of touching the restart.txt. But uh, <laughs> no, I, I mean, okay, so I feel like, um, so I think that all of us, I, I don't, I, I don't always remember everybody's like story and stuff, but I think like all of us have at least lived through the time where uh, we had a box and we had to baby that box right like i i feel like uh dave's story is actually like the common use case and then you know maybe we graduated to uh you know from physical boxes right in my first gig to you know uh ec2 back when uh aws like uh came out with stuff and that was super exciting and very cool um you know we we'd always had like you know you could get uh a VPS somewhere, or I guess whatever we called those things that you would get from Linode at the time or whatever, you were getting a virtual server or whatever. You always get those, but then like EC2 is like, hey, you can have a ton now. And now, um, yeah, so that was better. But now we live in the time of like Docker and, you know, and Kubernetes. And like, I, I mean, obviously things have like kind of like progressed and moved on or whatever, um, you know, but then there's also these other paths. We also have like, the Heroku's of the world, right? Which are like, um, give us your code and like we'll handle like the deployment. Uh, I, I have a client that I take care of that's on Cloud 66, which is like kind of similar-ish or whatever, but it's like, give us the keys to your AWS account or whatever, and uh, or like some sort of like link to your AWS account or whatever, and you spin up some boxes, we'll install everything on it that you need to or whatever. And they're kind of like taking care of it from there. Like, um, there's like a lot of different options. And I guess, so I feel like from most raw, which is like kind of the space that like David, I think is talking about, right? Where you have to like take care of the thing and, oh no, you know, my Samba storage is down today. So like nothing works and like everything's throwing errors because it can't store anything on my file system. And now I got to figure out like what's wrong or remount everything and have huge fire today. And so like, we're not getting any work done because we're just trying to like rescue the server uh, to, you know, I mean, yeah. Or, or, you know, like having to budget your Ram. I, I feel like all of those concerns are like, 
they could be the concerns of yesteryear, but we still do have people doing them. I, I'm a huge fan of like Docker and things because I think that for the most part, you get to uh, pretend like those things don't exist anymore because now I'm just like, I have a pool of servers. Kubernetes just like shuffle things around so that it kind of works for me, you know, whatever. And because I just don't want to deal with that stuff anymore. Um, yeah. Well, hang on a second. Hang on a second. I haven't heard Darren's story of shame yet. Uh, we've had we've had Dave's Windows build. Um, Valentino, you were uh, what did you say you you, you were on? It, it was a shared VM. You, 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 you <laughs> the live sensible, and then then John. I, I think you've got the most sensible. You were on bare metal, am I right? Uh, for my first gig, yeah, we were on bare metal. And we were running like LightyPD at the time. It was like Rails 1, you know, and that was a thing. And then whatever. Then we switched to Bare Metal and Apache. And then we moved to S3. I, I did a lot in that first job where we, we evolved a lot in that first job. Darren, can you, can you complete the full house of possible deployment methodologies? <laughs> yeah. So when I started, I basically... You know, AWS EC2 was where the Rails apps were getting deployed to. And, you know, this is like about, in my case, about seven years ago, give or take. But in general, you know, when we talk about, well, I'm a developer creating a new app. What do I think about deployment? I mean, honestly, the truth is, like, I don't want to think about it. It's, you know, primarily, it's kind of commodity stuff. You know, it's much less interesting than the new Twitter app or the new, you know, Shopify, whatever I'm building. Like I what I think what developers and this is going to build on what John said, I think what as a developer we should be thinking about is making sure that our app can run in a container. There are so many benefits to doing that. I get so much more flexibility in terms of deployment, scalability. You know, you can get rid of, not all of, but you can get rid of a lot of the, it works on, on my machine because it's, you're in a better position to have development environments that are closer to your production with containers. You know, the challenges today, and, and John mentioned some of the, the platforms, uh, you've got Docker, Kubernetes, you've got, you know, these are still somewhat complex tooling mechanisms. So you really want, <laughs> you really want to have a platform you or you want to have folks who are knowledgeable in this today to help you get this set up. If you have something like a Heroku or there are others out there that will kind of do this work for you, that's great. Um, if you have a DevOps folks that are in your organization that know this, that's great. Lean on them. Um, but but to me as an engineer, like that would that would be where I would focus, like making sure my app can run in a container not work, you know, try not to think so much about all the other deployment complexities and uh, get that thing into a, a pipeline that will get it deployed. Now, granted, again, that's, that's the challenge today. I think the tooling is continuing to mature and will get a lot better. But that's, that's kind of where my, my head is at. One, one thing about Docker, I will say, is that all my development goes on Docker. So if I'm creating a new application, it, I will from day one, spin up a Docker container, you know, create my Docker YAML file, the uh, Docker file to do, you know, all the development, you know, stuff that I need. 
I am less worried about deploying it as a container to production. I'm okay with having an EC2 instance, which I have to set up the appropriate YAML files or whatever files that I'll need for Elastic Beanstalk or something like that to deploy. And the main reason there is because my production environment does not change often. So if I deploy to Beanstalk, it'll auto-provision the EC2 instance, however many I specify, and whatever packages are on there are pretty much on there. AWS does handle some auto-updates of certain things, so I don't have to worry about the security and maintenance of it. But that does give me a few benefits where I don't have to worry about maintaining these EC2 pets. They are more like EC2 cattle, where I could destroy one at any given point in time. It'll reprovision a new one. I don't have to worry about it. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop you there. You've triggered me. You've triggered me with your analogy of pets and cattle. I uh, worked with a colleague who uh, may or may not have been one of the people who were directly responsible for espousing this DevOps philosophy of the idea of pets and cattle. And I would just like to say that all of my servers are precious pets. They all have names. Some of them have backstories. Um, I, I lovingly care for all of my servers, much in the same way, and not, not, not in the kind of Western master-slave animal-owning paradigm. I go further than that. The way I care for my servers is not as pets, but more as a kind of, uh, in the Japanese tradition of Zen gardening, where um, I, am, I am merely the caretaker for these servers. These servers existed before me, and they will continue to exist for long after me. So I, I'm merely their custodian. That's but I, I take the total opposite approach to my servers. And um, if you purchase uh, my software services, your servers will be cared for in this loving, this loving, this kind of extremely careful, um, tender, um, uh, nurturing way. Uh, your servers going on a journey. It's definitely only treated as cattle. <laughs> so you know the main idea and point though is. My development environment, so my personal computer that I use on a daily basis, it changes often. I will run brew upgrade without a second thought. And things like Node or whatever else will update just magically. And I don't even think about it. And I'll install a different program or do something else or change some configuration. So the idea and point is, is that my development environment is changing constantly. But my server environments are not. So for running Docker locally, or as I'm developing, that's going to be really critical because as there's a new major version of Postgres or MySQL, and I'm starting up a new application, I'm going to use whatever the latest is. Because number one, Brew Upgrade already did that for me. So if I have to go back and work on an older application that does not support that newer version, then I'm pretty much screwed. Because now I have to maintain two different applications that are using two different versions of Redis or SQL, whatever this situation is. So having Docker on my local development is really critical for my productivity. The benefit of using Docker in production 
So that's not to say Kubernetes, because that's a whole different subset of stuff. But creating a Docker image, pushing it up to a registry, and deploying that image from that registry into a production environment does still have its benefits. Yes, so you still have the overhead loss of the containerization. It's only like 2%, but it's still there. And the nice bit about it is auto-scaling and provisioning is incredibly fast. You're basically limited to your network bandwidth there and spin-up time. Unlike having a Beanstalk instance where I'm deploying a new application or I'm, uh, I'm getting a lot of traffic so it has to auto-scale, that auto-scale is going to take 10 minutes at least because it has to create a new EC2 instance. It then has to install all the packages, deploy my application, and then wait for health checks, wait for it to get into the load balancer. Then it is ready to handle requests. On a container, if I were to deploy to Beanstalk and that container uh, is what's getting deployed, it still has to spin up that EC2 instance and stuff. But uh, I think Beanstalk does now, or they have had a container service where it's still Beanstalk, but instead of creating EC2 instances, you're deploying to EKS or ECS. And it's going to just have to pull that image, spin it up, and it's ready to go. You're talking about 20 seconds versus 10 minutes. And that's about within the time frame that you need to be able to handle those requests that are coming in so your application doesn't crash. I so will say from, that it's, that is yeah. quick on Amazon, but I found Google's infrastructure be significantly more sluggish when deploying these things. So I, I, I think uh, Amazon have a much better user experience in that regard. Yeah, generally speaking, container startup time, uh, like you were saying, is almost on the order of milliseconds, you know, as opposed to EC2 servers, which could be 30 seconds, could be more. So it is significantly different. And yeah, I think Corey Quinn had a recent post. I think you mentioned that Beanstalk will also let you do that now. I think Corey Quinn pointed out, I think there's 17 different ways on AWS to deploy a container. So um, actually, as this podcast we're recording this, they probably just announced an 18th one. I'll have to go check, refresh my page. Um, but um, another thing to consider then is also that, you know, we talk about scaling up, there's also scaling down. So we're starting to see more of, you know, requirements for, you know, we have on my team right now, we have multiple integration and test environments. So you want to be able to scale that down to zero, you know, when you're not using that, right? Like, we all thought that going to the cloud was going to save ourselves a bunch of money. And I think people, organizations are finding out like, well, no, you know, it we're didn't. spending... Yeah, we really, really didn't. We're spending our money in different places now. And it's actually, you know, now that anyone with a click of a button can create resources, it's like, oh, maybe we're spending a little more than we thought. So you're starting to see more. And FinOps is a whole growing, cat, uh, I guess, growing skill set. You see positions for it and a, a focus that organizations have. One last thought real quick to uh, add on to the benefits of, of local Docker development that Dave was talking about, you know, we're using Elastic Cache, we're using Redis, and what we're doing now. And I've I've been in this situation before. So you want to have a local development environment. Well, you know, I don't want to have to install Redis and do all this stuff. And so just simply being able to fire up a Redis Docker uh, container on my local machine and have that running, you know, in, in a few seconds 
super nice, super helpful. Just really, 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 really easy to get stuff like that going. Even more than that, um, let's say that. So, uh, kind of to to take where you're going with that, Darren, and and go even further with it, right? Like being able to put that in a Docker Compose, right, and being able to say, all right, you know what? When you spin up this app, grab all these services, spin them up too, right? Uh, especially in, for example, cases that I deal with, which is like I have some old apps that are legacy, right, and they have some very old versions of things. And it's it's difficult to have multiple, for example, uh, MySQL is a great example of this. An old version of MySQL with a newer version of MySQL just doesn't, they don't play nice together because they want to use the same place to put their data and, you know, and that doesn't work. Um, so, uh, you know, having both installed is actually an absolute pain in the butt. You have to like brew, stop one service, start the other, you know, things like that. So, um, and, you know, if you want to have that be in Docker containers, okay, that's that's really cool and everything. But now you have to remember to stop one Docker container so that you can free up the host port and for another, you know, things like that. Uh, one of the cool things about doing, you can go a step further with this, uh, with your Docker Compose, you can be like, okay, uh, you run your Docker contain, you know, it, you run all these Docker services, you know, and they're all like kind of like local so to speak, to the network that's inside your Docker Compose YAML or whatever. And uh, so they can talk to each other. You don't have to expose those on your host machine, so you don't necessarily have to worry about conflict. And one of the things that I do is I provide an environment file uh, that, you know, I provide an example file in my repo, and then you you duplicate that as an environment file, like when you're first installing an app on your machine or whatever. And uh, you can say, you know what, uh, I already have, an app that I want to run on port 3000. So I'm going to make this one run on 3001. And this one can run on 3002. So you can do, you can do things like that. Um, I want I want this one to be exposed, you know, this Postgres to be exposed on 5832 and this one to be on 5833. You can configure however you want as your development, but it all just kind of like works. So there's some cool stuff that you can do. Um, yeah, I'm also a huge fan of using Docker in production, or I'm sorry, development. But I'm also a fan of using Docker in production for other. I, I think there's some really cool benefits that you get from that too. Um, mainly coming down to, I, I think one of the interesting things that you said, Darren, actually was, well, hey, I, I think that we're spending, you know, basically the same amount of money. Totally agree with that. However, I think one of the most awesome benefits that we're getting from the shift to Docker is this sort of like flex. We're getting flexibility in a lot of places. Uh, flexibility and that I really don't always need to know what specific box something's running on. Um, for example, if you're using Kubernetes or something like that, right? It can move your container around and who cares what box it's working on. You just log into the cube and find your stuff, you know, uh, and you're logging into your container that way. Um, so that's, that's super awesome and super flexible. The idea that you can, um, you know, have multiple of these containers like kind of just like fitting into one box which you could do before but like it, it just now i can like take one off and go put it somewhere else and put another one in like there's a lot of like little bits of flexibility that we're getting from doing this container stuff which i think is super cool for almost zero loss um as as dave pointed out it's like a two percent you know um you know, CPU usage, you know, overhead. It's not too bad. Yeah. And I think, 
you know, uh, I'm also a big fan of Kubernetes. I think Kubernetes definitely solves a uh, problem in a certain space. But I'm also a big fan of not recommending Kubernetes because it does have a lot of... Hang on a second. So you can have Kubernetes, but we can't. Well, it's conditional. So I think that if you have an application, this is your only application that you're deploying, and you say, or your CTO heard, all the big companies use Kubernetes, so you have to use Kubernetes. I think that's a horrible justification, which I think that we get roped into way too much different conversation. But a monolith does not need Kubernetes. Kubernetes is great for orchestrating your environment, but if you only have a web server and maybe a worker server, your Redis, your database, your Elasticsearch is all in the own proper services, whether it's Elasticache, RDS, whatever, then your Kubernetes is only spinning up your application service and your worker service for background jobs. It's not really doing anything else. Now, Kubernetes does come in handy if your application has five different services. And you have to have all these five services up and running properly. You want auto-scaling. You don't want to have to worry about you know, which server they go on and stuff like that. So one of the things about Kubernetes is if you do go down this road, you set up three different nodes or EC2 instances, virtual machines, whatever, for your Kubernetes instance. And you only have one thing to deploy there. Let's say you just have your app service. Well, then now you just have overhead on top of overhead to deploy one simple application as a container. You could have just done with uh, ECS instead and gotten the exact same benefit, but it's going to not only be cheaper, it's going to be easier to maintain. So I think you have to pick the right tooling for your application. And so... That's why I said at the beginning of our discussion that we need to take into consideration what do we want our hosting environment to look like as we're developing this. If you want to go the uh, crazy microservices route where you have 100 different microservices, but you don't want to use Kubernetes because that's a foreign technology to you, you want to set up a virtual machine for each microservice, well, you're going to have a nightmare of a time maintaining that. Kubernetes is going to be the more proper route to go. So it really depends on what you're looking to do. But if someone approaches me and says, Hey, we've been thinking about using Kubernetes. We have a simple monolith application. I'm going to probably tell them, you do not need Kubernetes. You need to just go with the Elastic Container Service. This is this is exactly the problem I have with Docker, though. because the barrier to entry in Kubernetes is very high. You have to invest a lot of time in it. Um, yes, it may it, it works, but it's not a very intuitive way of doing things. Uh, and they're still, still very much in flux. Um, in order to use Docker, you kind of need to be pretty good on the command line to start off with. 
you 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 really do need to know your way around a kind of Linux sub- subsystem. Uh, and I've we've had a lot of trouble onboarding people to Docker. And I'd say people always spend a lot more time fiddling with Docker stuff and hitting a problem there than they do with actually kind of uh, getting things going. Whereas if they just had a nice happy VM, you know, and a script, <laughs> uh, that maybe maybe we would have had fewer problems. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think there's a it, it's it's the classic trade off where you've been, you know are you prepared to invest the time to get the benefits? Are you under increasing pressure to ship code faster than ever before? Then it's time to work smarter with Raygun's modern approach to error and performance monitoring. Raygun gives you instant visibility into the health of your software. And what makes it so unique is that it not only tells you when something's gone wrong, it shows you exactly where it's gone wrong and how to fix it, right down to the line of code. Made by developers for developers, Raygun has built a suite of monitoring tools that are used and loved by thousands of software teams every day. Monitor every corner of your tech stack with widespread language support and native integrations with GitHub, Jira, Slack, Bitbucket, Octopus Deploy, and more for even greater visibility. Visit Raygun.com to resolve issues faster and deliver flawless digital experiences for your users. That's Raygun.com to get started on your free 14-day trial with plans starting from as little as $4 per month. I think that's a good segue into maybe the progression of your deployment strategy, right? Like if you're starting out with an MVP product or something, um, you know, do you want to use Kubernetes? <laughs> do you do you even want to use a containerized service? Uh, really, if you're say like one to five developers working on something, is that something that you want to start with versus say something like Heroku or any of the other number of build pack related? Uh, sites that kind of do that initial wave for you. You know, it's a horrible feeling I'm wrong about it. This is the trouble, Valentino. I, I suspect that Dave is correct. And that I mean, this personally, is, this is fundamentally a better way of doing stuff. Yeah, but, I, I completely agree with, with the containerization as a stabilized framework for DevOps, right? Like, you want to get this, you know, ultimately a binary and be able to move it around, replicate it, and, you know, elasticize your ability to, you know, control your resources in the way that you want. Um, When you have an established system that you want to do that with, uh, you know, and, and maybe if you're starting out small, it makes sense to start feeding into that factory. But I feel like for many... I've seen a lot of Rails apps and and they simply just don't need that capacity. They don't need those features. I feel like Docker in general is overused. And I I, want to circle back to Docker in development, which I am, I really hate. (laughs) I think it's, I I think it's good for a lot, for some things. Um, Read the evil Martians guide. (laughs) So I, I was gonna I was gonna say I love Evil Martians uh, Overmind and their Hivemind uh, products. Uh, that those software are great. I really miss the days where I could just use a proc file and like sp- spin up everything that it needs and be able to directly test things and debug on my local machine rather than log into some container or virtualized container on my system <laughs> and then have to figure out how to uh you know connect to each other service that is also running in their own 
container, <laughs> uh, no, you know, share resources, or not share resources, but share the network, uh, right? Because uh, they're all isolated containers because that's how you make things. Um, but it's really hard to debug and really hard to work with. And it, at least on the Mac, it consumes resources like crazy. Uh, you know, I'll spin up, you know, one application and I have like 30 gigs gone to, <laughs> to Docker. Uh, and it, it could just ramp up double that in the next, you know, couple hours if I'm not watching what's running. Like say there's a service failure and some of those containers can no longer talk to each other. And they're all, all those applications are blowing up now and consuming further resources, generating all those errors and connection problems. Uh, it just seems to me to be like a resource nightmare. And, you know, especially if you have people that aren't DevOps familiar running these containers locally, um, it, it is like exacerbated times 100, right? You need to get on your DevOps guy to fix that. <laughs> just, just saying. Like, uh, no, no, no. I mean, apparently it's not you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You'd be like, look, this, this isn't how it should work. I, I would definitely say that if you're have, I'm not saying that that problem never happens, right? Like, that's, that's not my point. But I would say that, like, those are really solvable problems. And for the most part, we have pretty good solutions for them. Um, I would definitely say that, like, if you are running Docker, uh, in development, uh, you need, you, you know, it's perfectly possible. Like it's pretty easy to, conf I shouldn't say easy. That's not fair. Everyone has different problems, but, but it's definitely completely doable for you to figure it out. You shouldn't be, you know, completely hosing your machine just by spending up one app, right? If well, you're running like five apps, okay, maybe I, I can totally get you. I, you know, I definitely know. exaggerate it. It's not one app, right? It's, it's one. It's the monolith, which has a bunch of apps that need to support it, which can be up to like twenty, right? So, like, say you maybe more than that. So, especially when you get to scale, like their own like, database or something. <laughs> like, I mean, I can totally see your entire machine being hosed if you're running like you know ten complete apps at one time. But you would have the same exact problem if you were running, you know, all of that locally too. Your, your machine must... is not majestic enough for your monolith. That's I mean, <laughs> I, the difference between running them, uh, you know, in their own containers, right, with their own databases, yes, right? Uh, the, the difference between doing that in the containerized system and locally when you're running multiple apps, like with a proc file or something, is that they share a database ah. locally, right? So, yep, I get that. And I mean, you can even... and. Uh, they share Redis. They share all those services that you install on your machine, um, and so it's not those that <laughs> yeah. The resources and they all know. are shared. What you're saying is that the way that you guys have it set up is so that each one of these apps has their own individual database, and none of that's shared. That's uh, that's a great recipe for that exact problem. Uh, I, I didn't want to turn this into like you know uh, diagnose your problem. Uh, I'm not. Today, I'm but, not saying that. Uh, um, you know, also that <laughs> that I'm the only one with this problem, right? Like, which which I think is a kind of a signal to Docker and as a uh, environment, right? Like for our industry, our people you know that are integrating tools with this 
I've seen many different large scale companies implement local Dockerized systems similarly to the way that you know we might have it, and it seems to almost to me be I, obviously it's it's solve a problem, but it's also a common problem. Yeah, I actually wanted to speak to this, which is kind of why I was like trying to jump in um, a little bit, uh, because I think this is like this is a thing that I hear all the time. And people are talking about their pain and they're like, well, it's Docker's fault. And 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 I'm trying to say, like, I, I think it's a knowledge problem, right? Like, I think Docker's new enough, kind of speaking a little bit to what Darren was saying, right? It's not mature enough. People aren't used to it enough. There's so much. It's so easy to misconfigure something that people don't really understand yet, right? And that's what I'm arguing is going on here. Like, you're speaking to the exact scenario that I see all the time, which is that People aren't really thinking about how they should architect this. They're just like, Docker's cool, so let me do it on my app, right? They kind of like pick up like a couple tutorials or whatever that seem okay. And then they suddenly, you know, if you have anything, like you're talking about, you've got a monolith with supporting services, right? Which is really kind of microservices, if that makes sense. It's, you know, it's somewhere on the scale, right? If we're talking about, you know, super microservices, maybe it's not way over there, but it's somewhere in between like a single monolith and microservices. And like, you're already at the point where you've got to think about your architecture and and, uh, you know, when you're setting up your development Docker, right, you're probably going to have to think about that, too. Once you hit microservices, like you got to think about having a shared database and things like that. That's uh, that's the thing you're going to need to do uh, without like trying to dive, dive into like how to solve that particular problem. Like, I guess what I'm trying to get at is like there's a certain amount of knowledge that you have to have. I think in order to be able to do this Docker stuff, which is why people are making money doing DevOps. You know, to be honest, um, yeah, I, I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is like I think that um, it, it, the reason why I'm a big fan of Docker in development is because you can solve all of these problems. But I think like trying to revert back to your point, which is like, okay, well, do I do that from the very beginning? Like maybe I do something else at first. You know, um, I, I'm a big opinion. Uh, or I'm a big fan of like, it kind of depends on the kind of knowledge and skills that you have on your team, right? So if you have somebody on your team that uh, understands how to set up Docker pretty early on, I think there's a huge benefit to getting into Docker using that environment, even if you're not jumping to Kubernetes, which is also something that I would point out, you don't have to run Kubernetes in production. You can run Docker raw or just Docker compose, you know, both of those tools are perfectly fine. You don't have to jump all the way to Kubernetes. Um, but either way, like if you don't have somebody on your team when you're first starting out that like, you know, is pretty strong in the Docker area, maybe you don't want to jump on that bandwagon right away. Um, I personally feel pretty strongly and confident about my Docker skills. So I'm just going to jump to Docker containers every time. It's really easy for me to like day one of the app, throw it in a Docker compose, literally takes me 15 minutes boom, I have a scalable thing. You know, it's a pattern that I've been using for a long time. And I just repeat it. You know, I know how to use it, right? Very good. I'll never touch a Roku. But if, but if I'm like tutoring somebody, for example, or like mentoring somebody who has no idea what Docker is, they're just like pretty new to Rails. Like, I think that pushing them towards a Roku is fine. I, that doesn't bother me at all. As long as they understand that like, you know, when they go to deploy, an app, if their app starts to grow, their bill's going to start to grow too. And they might want to, you know, think about that at that point. Um, pushing them towards Elastic Beanstalk is also a, a reasonably good choice, right? Early on. 
or AWS AppRunner, which is their more recent. Back That's in right, May, yeah. they announced the container Beanstalk-like Heroku app service. <clears throat> but, you know, I think it also just depends on the application. You know, where do you want this application to live? And for me, I will have some things on Heroku. Things that are not revenue generating. So if they do end up crashing or going down, you know what? I'm actually okay with that. I'm not going to get up out of bed in the middle of the night over one of those going down. But if my phone starts alarming me that some applications that people are actually paying me for are going down, then I will get up out of bed to address those issues. And those applications I have on an environment where I have a lot more control over. Not only the actual control over that environment, but better access to just SSH into one of those machines if I need to in order to investigate or try something or whatever the situation. So I think every situation is unique in what the proper direction needs to go. And uh, just one other thing about Docker on our development environment versus the production environment, use different Docker files. Use one Docker file for your development environment and one Docker file for your production environment because they are going to be in some way or another a bit different. So I have a production Docker file within my applications that will do extra things like pre-compile the assets and it'll store the bundle in that Docker file. Whereas my local Docker file that I use for development will have a few different flags or volume mounts. So as I'm using my host editor, uh, VS Code or whatever, to make changes, it's automatically making changes in that Docker file or in that Docker container. It sounds like you need build packs. <laughs> kind of. Um, so so I, uh, I made a tool called Shiplane which uh, it, its entire purpose is to say, okay, I wrote this Docker Compose YAML environment you know, for my development, right? Now I want to ship this to production and I should just be able to do it, right? You know, like we all used to just, you know, be like, all right, it's time to go production, cap deploy, produ-, you know, whatever, right? And, and we just get it out there. Um, I felt like that was super important. So like one of the things that Shiplane lets you do is like, like Dave said, your production file does have to be different in some small ways. Um, it shouldn't be radically different, but you're going to have to pre-compile assets. You're going to have to do handle your bundle differently usually. Um, and so, uh, you know, one of the things that like Shiplane lets you do is like, you know, it uses multi-stage kind of uh, Docker stuff to say, okay, well, uh, I pre-built my Docker file, but then like the last couple steps I want you to do is I want you to pre-compile my assets. I want you to like uh, uh, whatever it is when you you bundle it and you vendor it in a folder or whatever, right? Um, uh, I want you to do those steps, right? And and then boom, you're like out there in production. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, you have to. You can't get away from that. So you have to have some, like either your CI pipeline has to handle that or you have to manually, uh, you know, keep two different Docker files, which I think is like the worst solution of all of them. Um, but you have to have something that converts, you know, your Docker file from dev into production somehow. I don't think having two different Docker files is the worst, especially if you have like your development Docker file. Or let's say 
uh, we had two Docker files that suggested. Let's go ahead and add a third one in. All right. So you have your main Docker file. And this main Docker file has the directives from Ruby 3.0.2. And then you have your necessary things that you are building in, bringing in like the um, dependencies that you need for your application. And then pretty much the Docker file stops there. It gets built. And then you have your development Docker file, which inherits from that one, the your main one. And you just have the directives specific for your development environment. Production one still inherits from that main Docker file, but then just has the directives to uh, run the assets pre-compile. So without like jumping into specifics and, and like... I, I think what you mean is probably you uh, uh, you're probably uh, doing multi-stage building from the previous Docker file or whatever. Yeah, inheritance is like and there's there is actually a uh, a uh, add-on that lets you have inheritance, but inheritance isn't like a thing normally. Um, but uh, or experimental feature, that's what it is, I think. Um, anyway, I played with it one time. Uh, the only reason that I was getting at like the differences, right? Like is um, I'm just a big fan of automating, right? Rather than having a human being uh, maintain the two. Uh, it's really more like uh, trying to get as close to a dry principle uh, in my Docker file handling, right? As I can, because um, that seems to, I don't know, that makes a lot of sense to me or whatever. Like I don't want to have two files in my repo that can get out of sync with one another which has totally happened. So, so, so I know that like, uh, I was like trying to like kind of respond to, to your pain specifically, Valentino. I didn't know if, if you had some, had some thoughts. Before um, we, before we leave that, like why wouldn't, and maybe I don't know what the differences are. I, I'm with you, John, I'd prefer to have just one. Can you not address this with environment variables or some other thing? Like why? Uh, you can, but you're now, abstra- the more you can do that. But you're now abstracting more things, right, uh, into you know something that you have to inject at runtime. And I prefer to have fewer things uh, because now all you're doing is you're extracting the differences, right, elsewhere. Um, so, for example, like the biggest the biggest two things that I can think of off the top of my head, the ones that I've had the most experience that are the biggest difference between development uh, and production. Uh, besides, you know, just Rails M equals production and Rails M equals development, right? Which are a thing. Um, and that can easily be handled with an environment variable because it is one. Uh, are going to be like the uh, handling of your bundle and the handling of your assets, right? However you do with that. Um, and, and I, you know, uh, maybe your yarn as well. Um, though I don't, I haven't really found that to be as much of an issue. Um, just because yarn is basically the same, or like my yarn lock is the same for production and development, but yep. So you could handle that with environment variables, but I'm like, I'm trying to think of like a way that I could do it that isn't like janky. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I mean, you can handle anything with environment variables, but yeah, like I could change like where what folder it's like bundled into, for example, right? Like and have both development and production there and then just like switch it with a flag um but then you know that that also increases my size you know of my file so i'm i 
I don't know if you had yeah, it, had a it thought doesn't here. Eliminate, it doesn't eliminate it, right? I mean, like if there are truly differences, right? You're pointing to different in servers. Change like my volumes. Somewhere maybe. that has to be, <laughs> you have to account for that somewhere. So you can't just completely remove the complexity. But um, so I guess it's a matter of which is the artifact or mechanism that's easier managed where you have these differences. That Maybe that's the question to ask. And So I think my solution to that, Darren, is bin functions. So within the bin folder in my Rails application, I will have a deploy function uh, or just a bash script, which based on which environment I specify as a parameter when I'm running that function, then it'll target the correct environment. So I will have a bin slash deploy. If I don't do anything else in there, then it'll return an error like, where do you want to deploy to? And it'll give me the list of options. So bin deploy production. Then it'll, if I have the proper access on that machine I'm running it from, it'll automatically deploy it to my production environment. And that's really great for a couple of reasons. One, it creates consistency, which I'm really big on. So all of the applications that I maintain will have a bin deploy function. And that will... Uh, have a local host, a staging, and a production. So I don't have to think about, okay, this application's on Heroku, so I need to deploy like this. Or this application is on Beanstalk, so I need to deploy a different way. And so all the necessary environment variables on, let's say if I did want to use just one single Docker file, those environment variables would be embedded into that bin function so I don't have to worry about it. So I also do things like a bin SSH. So that'll log me into a SSH terminal of that application. If I am doing local development within Docker, you don't really just have immediate access into SSHing into that container. But bin SSH gets me right into there. I don't have to worry about it. Or if I need to, for whatever reason, do a bin SSH into production, I can do that as well. Appropriate environment variables and stuff are set. So it just takes me right into there. So I think that could help solve some of the um, the dryness, if you will, that John was speaking about. So you're not having to... That's okay. Those are, yeah. those are important tools to have too. Yeah, but I, if nothing else, it promotes consistency. So I don't have to ever worry about once I get it set up and up and running... I don't have to remember what do I need to do because it's almost muscle memory now. I need to deploy to production. Well, of course, the proper answer is, well, then push it up to my code repository. The CICD will do that for me. But in a pinch, I have my bin deployed production. All right. So we got all these sweet tools uh, that, that we've been making. So, all right. So back... Back to the thing that you were talking about, Valentino, which is like that uh, it creates some pain in development or whatever. And obviously, I th- I think that I, you know, have a solution for your particular issue. But you know, like, um, yeah, I, I didn't. I guess I just wanted to be like, hey, so so we said a bunch of stuff, like, and and you seem to be on the other side. I just wanted to give you an opportunity to like, you know, hit it back. Sure. So I mean, the biggest pain point when you get enough applications that are related to your organization that need to be run at some point that may or may not be related, um, where you have a lot of teams, a lot of people, uh, a lot of non-technical people 
that need to get a local version of something running. Um, Docker is both good and bad, right? Where it's easy to get set up, but also hard to resolve issues. And I'm I'm talking specifically more about these non-technical people that are going to be in your organization that also need to run a local version of it. Or think of it like somebody's trying to, you know, install a you know WordPress locally to try and get a new theme running or, or designed. Um, you know, that's the typical way to do that now is they'll, you know, download the container from WordPress, Docker Hub, and get it running and then do their own things without having to worry about installing any new local tools or configuring them. Um, because, you know, let's face it, a lot of people designing for WordPress shouldn't need to worry about those things, right? Um, and so it is for... It's great for that. <laughs> uh, but still, any anytime, anytime that... I, uh, it just seems to add a layer of complexity, which I find unnecessary. Right? Where you've added this layer on top of your machine as a developer that, that isn't necessary f- for doing what we need to do. Yeah, I think that kind of speaks to like, you probably shouldn't try to support something that you don't have expertise in. Like, I feel like, uh, and, and I'm not, saying that like i guess what i'm saying is if you don't feel comfortable with docker right like you probably shouldn't be delivering it to non-technical people who aren't going to be able to solve their own problems i i definitely have been at places that are trying to do that or whatever right like you definitely got to have somebody who can create a system like if you're going to put a dockerized environment which i actually think is really fantastic to do for non-technical people if you're going to put that in front of people then you need to be able to support that system like you got to be able to deliver them a system that's going to work most of the time out of the box and then you got to be able to handle the problems that come with it because everything has problems right you got to be able to support those problems otherwise you're going to be in trouble and i i definitely feel like um a lot of shops are just like, well, Docker's a new thing. And and then they just like plop it in front of everybody and like everybody's just having trouble with it. And that to me kind of speaks to, you don't have the support infrastructure in place to do that yet. Yeah, I mean, it's a double-edged sword, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm familiar with Docker. I can go in and debug these issues. Uh, the, they still come up though, right? Like applications have issues, they're complicated, especially as they grow in size. Uh, it's just debugging at, at a, you know, I guess debugging microservices in general is hard, right? Um, but it seems, it seems to be harder <laughs> when, when you add that extra layer, um, at least in my experience. Yeah, I, I mean, I can't deny that you're adding more things, so it's fundamentally more complex. Right. right? That's what I, I mean. That's ultimately what I'm getting at, and that that kind of is just bringing back to the the kind of idea of Docker is that it's kind of uh, complicated in its own realm just by existence, uh, and you add that complexity anytime you use it. So anybody. Sure, you're de- anytime you deliver a product that uses Docker, you have to, you need to have people that support Docker. 
but you also introduce something that is unknown to two people, right? Like on purpose. <laughs> yeah. You know, funny story about right. that. My brother, uh, I talked to him the other day. He is not a developer by any stretch of the imagination, but he is an electrical engineer and he was having to design some circuit boards and some microprocessors. And apparently the software to do that is extremely expensive. You're talking orders and magnitudes of a couple hundred grand a year for a license uh, each year. And so there is a Google initiative. I uh, forget what it's called, but it allows it to be more affordable to uh, smaller companies to design their own chips. And so... He wanted to get that up and running and it used Docker. Although the steps, the instructions to not go the Docker route was pages and pages long on here's the prerequisites for your environment. Here's what you need to do in order to install all of these applications and these dependencies and you know environment variables and scripts to run. It was insane. Or you can follow these 30 steps and get a fully working container uh, running in Docker. So I do agree that for a person who is not well-versed in Docker, jumping onto that bandwagon can be really complicated. But you also have to take into consideration, even with that additional layer of complexity, what levels of complexity are we completely just bypassing? If he just needs a turnkey solution which most of the time if someone is publishing a Docker image, it is a bit more turnkey more often than not. But what is the complexity that you're saving by adding more complexity with Docker, if you will? Yeah, I do feel like everything's a trade-off, right? And we often... Yeah. we One of the difficulties of, of having this discussion is that um, we're thinking about the positives, right? And we're not always um, very good at uh, because we've already said, you know what, these positives outweigh the negatives, and so we're not always like, I'm. This is this is one of the reasons like why I wanted to like uh, throw the question back to Valentino is like we're not always good about like uh, enumerating the negatives that like we've decided are are less of an issue for us because we think the positives outweigh, right? So, um, you yeah, know, I think me, that's. I think that's called confirmation bias. Like humans have a tendency to selectively find the evidence that suits the argument that we want to make and and reach the conclusion that we've kind of already come to. <laughs> I'm not. I, I, that's true too. But I, I was thinking just from the standpoint, like from my standpoint, I've already paid the cost. Uh, for in my case, right, it, the way that I'm thinking about it, I've already gotten to a place in Docker where I feel like okay, so I'm at an organization. And we've decided that we're going to like, you know, so for, I'm in an organization that has like QA people and people that are somewhat technical, but not as technical. Right. And um, if they want to, uh, you know, they run the app and you know, they struggle with, you know, their locally installed environment or they get a Docker environment. They struggle with the Docker environment. Right. Like those are both struggles. Like for me, it's a very obvious choice given the Docker environment. It's going to be way less, you know, difficult for, in in my mind, to support. But you, you know, you've already it, gone over the one-time cost of learning, you know, like getting that yep. basic knowledge. Yeah. But 
yeah yeah but i i think what valentino is expressing is like there's definitely a level of you know what i'm familiar with docker um and and i'm good enough with docker like on my local machine and stuff right like there's a level there but like maybe maybe there's a level above it right which is what i'm trying to describe is i think there's a level above which is like i can design the docker system and support that docker system and it's cheaper for me than the alternative or whatever um so there's also that too which is i guess what i'm trying to say is like uh i feel like the cost has already been spent so it's docker all the way but if you're not there yet like I, w this is the argument that I was trying to make earlier, which is like, if you really aren't there yet and you aren't feeling it, right, you don't feel like you can support it for whatever reason. Maybe you're just like, my app is too complicated. Um, and what I would say to you is that like, well, you could learn some things specific for your app, but like, you're not there yet, right? If you're not there yet for whatever reason, right, then maybe Docker isn't like that. You're just, that's okay. Like, just do something else. Like, that's okay, too. Um, but if you're like, my my main argument would be like, but if you're trying to decide on a technology, I, I would say it's totally worth the investment. You just might have to go farther down the road if you have a more complex app, you know, something like that to to both design a um, an architecture. I mean, it's the same with anything, I think, uh, DevOps related. Like, there are things that you have to do to design it from the first place so you don't end up with so many problems that you can't handle. And then once you design it, you have to be able to support that. Yeah, I think I think it does. I mean, and we talked about where if you just have a web app that talks to your database, then, you know, some of these platforms, containers, Docker are not going to help you that much. I think there are much fewer of those today. You know, almost it, it's kind of rare now a system that's pretty much standalone and just does its thing. If you work on one of those, that's great because you're less encumbered and you can, uh, you know, kind of proceed without anything stopping you. You know, in most cases, you've got other systems that you need to integrate with. You've, you know, I know there's some people are fans or not of microservices, but you've got other services that within the organization that you've got to integrate with. And so, you know, it's just, I think it's becoming, I think it's more common to have some of those more complex scenarios where these things do bring a benefit. Yeah. And if you're unfamiliar about the whole thing, go with a hybrid approach. You know, just try dockerizing your SQL instance and keeping everything else on bare metal. See how that goes and slowly just add in a few additional services, Redis or whatever else, and just see how it goes for you. And you may find that this is not worth the hassle and you just want to nuke the whole thing. And you know what? That's okay too. It, whatever makes you more productive, I think in the short term and the long term is going to be the best route for you to go. Yeah, and if you are going to have a bare metal server, make sure you have Luke maintain it for you because he takes really good care of those servers. Listen, I work for the servers, not the other way around. Sweet. <laughs> the machines are in control. Yeah, you know, I, I I bash a lot of Docker locally, but I have had some good experiences. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's go ahead and wrap it up and uh, move on to some picks. I think this was a fun, fun and productive conversation. Hey folks, it's Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to jump on real quick and let you know that I am putting together a podcasting course. I get asked all the time. I've been coaching people for the last six months. How do you start a podcast? How do you put it together? What do I need in order to get it going, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I've put together the curriculum, 
and I did it through coaching a whole bunch of people, and now I want to share it with you. You can go check out the course. It's actually going to be a masterclass. It's going to be a four-week masterclass where I actually walk you through the entire process of launching a terrific-sounding podcast and putting together content that people want to listen to, and you can find it at podcastbootcamp.io. Great. Uh, Valentina, do you want to start us out with some picks? Sure. Um, let's see. <laughs> I I had one and lost it. Why don't, why don't you skip me and I'll come I'll find something. I'll say UPS should be your pick today. <laughs> yeah. Power's I, currently for out. power surges, I have... Uh, yeah, that's a good one. So I have uh, UPSs hooked up to uh, my router and also to my modem. And also do my machine. So if the power does go out, at least I still have internet for an hour or two. So I am broadcasting live from a house without power. You're just off the grid, you off know, the grid. for for an hour. Valentino, <laughs> are are you broadcasting from a bunker? <laughs> No, not no. It's not a bunker. I got a window, luckily. So <laughs> I am a semi underground, though. All right, Darren. Do you have any picks? I do. I'm gonna shamelessly and without remorse uh, pick myself this week. I'm gonna. So my pick is an an article I wrote, and it's, I'm gonna tie it in back to the podcast. So a few episodes ago, we got into a, a pretty interesting discussion, and the the infamous saying came up, there's only two hard problems in computer science, which is a true saying, but the connotation there is that, you know, a lot of the rest of it is, is fairly easy. And so in the discussion we had, I made probably what was only a semi-coherent argument there that, well, one of these problems, one of these two problems, cash invalidation, actually is much bigger than what it sounds. It represents, it's a fundamental concept to a lot of programming managing state, variables, scope, things like that. And so after having had time to go back and think about it, I wrote this article and, you know, I, you got to come up with these clickbaity titles. So I called it debunking that infamous saying, uh, the two hard problems. So uh, that is my pick. I, I hope folks enjoy it. And, you know, it's, it, I, it's not done in a self-congratulatory kind of way. It's not like, oh, look at the hard things that we're doing. It's 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 more of an honest assessment of what are the challenges that we face as as software engineers. So, awesome. And John, do you have any picks? Yeah, I've got a couple. Um, so uh, first of all, uh, since be, due to our discussion today, uh, I will I will shamelessly pick Shiplane or whatever. If you if you run Docker Compose locally and you want to deploy to production, you know, um, it's I use it for all my stuff. So uh, I, you know, try it out. Um, I, you know, and give me feedback, you know, all the people out there that have been using it, like that haven't like sent me any feedback. I mean, it'd be cool to get some. So, uh, so there's that. Uh, and then also, uh, recently my, my wife decided that, um, we don't have a pool and, and I've always been anti-pool cause I don't, I just don't want to clean it. Um, but, uh, you know, we have plenty of yard space. So my wife decided to get an inflatable pool for my son, uh, which, you know, I guess, I don't know, he, he really loves it. So uh, just whatever it's a thing, but you know, with, with that kind of pool, right. It's not going to clean itself. Somebody has got to do something and, you know, they're hard to like, I mean, you can't just like dump the water because water weighs a lot. Um, 
you know, so you have to deflate the pool and stuff. So you got to do like cleaning stuff. You got to like cover it at night. And like, so anyway, I made like this homemade cover using a tarp. And then like, I took like uh, PVC um, pipes and filled them with sand to like weigh down the tarp so that it would like actually like stay over it and stuff. So anyway, I'm just, you know, homemade, homemade solutions to these problems or whatever, homemade pool cover in this case. So. Yep. That's, uh, I don't, I, I'm not exactly sure what the recommendation there was other than like, sort of like do it yourself stuff is totally, totally awesome. All righty. And Luke, do you have any picks? Well, I, John started me thinking about cool cleaning robots now. So you can get like a robot that will clean your pool. Have you seen these? Yeah, but, a... but I don't need, yeah, yeah, it's true. I've seen them, but but like a, a six by like eight foot pool, like, come on now. <laughs> yeah, come on, build it. Um, put an API on it. Let's go. The I've done some picks. I've done some Reba this week. Um, and one of the things I came across was the delegator classes, which I'd never used. This is total, total revelation for me. De- delegators in Ruby. Um, good post on the, um, about it on AppSignal. Um, simple, but very, but very, very interesting for me. And not seeing these kind of things done in the real world before. Uh, second and third picks a bit more exotic. You might be familiar with Donald Nuff's art of programming. Somewhat that has in it a theoretical processor. So instead of linking it to a processor, he makes up his own processor his own instructions um i think it's got seven or nine registers and fast forward to uh, the current year someone has made this processor the way they've done it is they've taken an fpga and they've used that to implement the theoretical processor in nuff's book in hardware um on an fpga uh crazy but incredibly cool to make your own CPU. And this is basically what the guy's done. Uh, and you could order, you can order it kind of um, pre-made from a company in Bulgaria called Olimex, who do lots of really great open source hardware stuff. Uh, there we go. Uh, you can do it. Make you know, forget this Docker business, forget all this abstraction. Design your own CPU architecture, make your own processors and ship on that. I mean, why not? Apple just did. Right. And they don't even have um, have Steve Jobs anymore. So, you know, uh, no, not Steve Jobs. The other one. Um, uh, what's, what's the guy who did all the work? Wozniak? Um, that's the one. Oh, well, that's a very bold claim. Are you suggesting Steve Wozniak did all the work at Apple? Dude? Shocking. <laughs> Shocking. All right. And I'll jump in there with Vic. While we're basically doing self-picks, I'll go ahead and pick Drifter Ruby. And specifically, I'll put a link to my Docker episodes that I've done. Um, One of them is how I basically had my Docker set up. And that was episode 226. And the second one, my second pick, is the 3 Doodler Create. So it's one of those little 3D pens that are... Uh, just a 3D printer, but it's an actual handheld pen that will just heat up the filament and then extrude it out. And I thought that those were just a gimmick and just really pointless and not very necessary, but they were actually very useful. Um, I had to repair a broken 3D print 
where the uh, 3D printer made the object just fine. However, the issue that I had was when I actually went to mount this bracket, it actually broke it. So I just heated up some of the ABS in this little 3D printer or in this little 3D pin, and I just bridged the gap. I didn't care about the aesthetics. It was more functional, and it actually fixed it. And the kids actually really love it. Um, I do monitor them while they are using it because it is extremely hot, but it is a lot of fun. I let them draw out like a little character on a sheet of paper and then show them, look, you can use this 3D pen printer to trace it out and turn it into a little 3D figure toy, right? Have they, have they used it on the walls yet? No, because it saves locked in my office when it's not being monitored. <laughs> I don't trust my kids. I understand that. All right. Well, everyone, uh, that was some great talks. Thanks for coming. And I guess I'll catch you all next time. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.